Welcome to episode 391 of We Don't Die Radio. I'm your host, Sandra Champlain, author of the international best-selling book called We Don't Die, A Skeptic's Discovery of Life After Death. And this is a special video episode. So if you'd rather be seeing my guest and myself, just pop on over to YouTube, type in We Don't Die Radio 391. And just a reminder, our home base is wedontdie.com, where you can always find motivation, inspiration, and comfort. Of course, you can join our Sunday gathering. It's our free non-denominational Sunday service that we have, including a medium demonstration. So lots of good things to check out at wedontdie.com. Our guest today, well, you're in for a treat. It's a friend that I haven't seen in quite some time. His name is Kellen Flukeiger, and he's a man making a global difference in so many ways. He's really passionate about helping people live their truest heart's desire and what it is to make that happen. He's a coach, a businessman, an author, a keynote speaker, amongst many things. He has written over a dozen books, including such titles as Walking Without Fear, The Power of Meditation, and listen to this, Meeting God at the Door, Conversations, Choices, and Commitments of a Near-Death Experience. So definitely a friend I thought you'd like to meet. You can find out more about him on his website, kellenflukeiger.com. Kellen, my friend, welcome to We Don't Die Radio. Sandra, it's delightful to reconnect with you. We, we talked for quite a bit some years ago, and then I just felt whatever guided. And so here we are, and I'm delighted, delighted. Just can't even say to see your face, hear your work. And I just, I was mentioning before, I, I just was visiting with one of our house guests who's also now in our company doing stuff with our podcasting and everything else about your work. And so I'm sure she'll be interested in attending your Sunday service. She was uh, lit up and wow, this is exciting. So this is going to be fun. We've added one to your congregation. <laughs> oh, that's great. That's great. Well, I'm happy to see you. I mean, it was years ago that we first met up with you and your lovely wife, Joy, and we kept in touch for a while. And then, you know, life happens. And we just recently started chatting again back on Facebook. And you just happened to drop the fact that you'd had a near-death experience. And I thought, wow, that now that not that I don't like to talk to you anyways, but that's something I thought we could share with everyone. So before we get to that, if you wouldn't mind saying a little bit more about you, who you are, your past. Um, yeah, what brings us up to this point? I know there's a lot to be said, but. There's a ton. And if you want details of anything that I say, it's in one of the books called Tightrope of Depression, My Journey from Darkness, Despair and Death to Light, Love and Life. And that all is written from Growing up and up to age 52, and I'll conclude before the near-death experience we'll talk about later. I use the word death in the title because my journey there included a couple of suicide attempts and a couple of dramatic things. I had a 30-year career, very high profile, this, that, and the other. But behind the scenes, I was a personal disaster and had gone through multiple relationships and bouts with addiction and rehab and all that kind of stuff. In 2007, I had a a divine intervention that uh, is outlined in the book that just gave me the invitation to change who I was being. So I walked away from a 30-year career and started all over again without even having any idea about what I was going to do. And that's when I became an author and a coach. And since then, as Sandra mentioned, I've written now 18 books and I've got five or six, two underway in the next year or two, and then six or so on the drawing board. Not because I want to have the most books in the universe, because I won't ever do that, but because there's so much to share about your possibility. My goal this year from 2000, my year starts October 14th, and that date for a year, New Year, has to do with what happened in 2007. It's my wife's birthday, but that whole thing is connected with the divine invitation then. But anyway, from 2014, or excuse me, to, uh, October 14th, Last year to October 14th, this year, my goal is to help 50 million people to discover their gifts and choose to serve with them. And for many, that means how do I create income and impact? For others, it makes how do I make the most difference in the world? To give in to that yearning that we all have to add good to the world and do good. So today, every single day, I only do one thing, first breath to last, and that's figure out how to help 50 million people. 
this year make that discovery and live into the truth of their divine capability. That's one heck of a bold statement that many people, but talk about having a purpose bigger than yourself. You can't, I mean, we all have bad days, but when you remember what you're really up to, it gets you right back in the driver's seat, doesn't it? It does. And you know, the fun thing, one of the, one of the outreaches I have is an LA talk radio show and the interview I had last night, uh, it's a guy named Chris Doris, and he's all about upgrading your, uh, your, your mental landscape. How does he say it? Uh, it's just fabulous. He's had 30 years in the business. He's worked with some huge sports figures and big companies and all this stuff. But it just comes down to, to making choices about what you're, what you're going to be, who you're going to be each day. And, you know, he told some funny stories about getting up on, you know, the wrong side of the bed. And he loves to attack our old phrases in in society and make them bear them for what they are excuses. And he was just a lot of fun. And so that, that interview was just spectacular. And that's one of the ways to reach out. Like he has a big audience and he's adding good to the world. And I love to feature and, and allow people, help people spread their messages that way. And that was an exciting thing that just happened last night. And it happens every week. Yeah, it's interesting how fast our audiences can grow. I don't really have the strategy, but I kind of do to have really exceptional interviews so that whoever the guest is, they love it too. And they want to share. And then two friends tell two friends and those two friends tell two friends, et cetera, and so forth. Because even in maybe it's a business podcast you have or whatever conversation anybody has, I think there's always gold that we can pull from it for our own lives. So you have a net that is just global, reaching all kinds of people through your through everything you're doing. So I'm so proud of you. Well, I'm going to share something with you. Last year, ending October 14th, my goal was 10 million. And as it came to the conclusion of that year in August or September, I was on a show uh, called The Giants and the Smalls which is about how everybody can be a giant. It's a great show and everything. And it was a good interview. And, you know, we were excited and it was fun. And when we got near the end, it was about an hour. And the host said something to me and I told him about 10 million. And he stopped me and he said, and he was emotional. And he said, that number is too small. And I said, okay. And he said to me, he said, we've been talking for an hour and you've changed my life. And I'm going to talk to hundreds of people this week. Do you have any idea how many that is? And, and he went on, he said, that number's too little. So then when October came, I thought, okay, 50 million. And so that's, you know, where that came from. And I want to encourage, I love what you're doing and the comfort and love and blessing and certainty because we, we choose how long we stay in states of sadness and pain, which are inevitable after someone passes. But we get to also pick when it's time to let those experiences refine and lift us. And what Chris, one of the things Chris said last night was when he went to India to do some studies, he said, you know, the most profound thing I came back with is any emotion when fully experienced all the way through ends in joy. And I thought about that and I thought, you know, yes, <laughs> you know, even sadness all the way through ends in a place of peace and joy. Yeah, there can so, always uh, be those moments of, oh, just thinking of, you know, my first reaction to that was, yikes, I don't want to sit in some emotions too long. But when you do, you hit that moment of peace and then there's, there can be gratitude and I'm sure you're like me with everyone who's listening or watching right now. Stuff happens in our lives and it can be ugly. It can be messy. But a couple of years down the road, you turn back and you look at those. And some of those things are just critical for making us who we are or getting the opportunity to serve another person. And we wouldn't be where we are today without them. People ask me all the time after they hear some of the stories in Tightrope. And the battlefield that was my life for 35 years, from the time I left home until I was 17, until I was 52. That battlefield was ugly and full of highs and lows, many millions of dollars, world stage stuff, and then the darkest of dark things. 
and they ask me, what would you do different or what would you change? And the answer is always nothing, 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 because the crucible of abuse, addiction, depression, self-loathing has, has refined me and given me things I wouldn't have any other way. Patience and love and capacity to see and understand and be a better coach and a better person. So I wouldn't change it. I wouldn't recommend that road for anyone, but I wouldn't change it. Yeah, we all have our roads. So anyone watching or listening right now, you know, you see Kellen yeah. and I, we might have a smile on our face and we're rah-rah and positive, but we've been on that roller coaster. We're still on that roller coaster. And we can share. So don't make yourself wrong for any of your journey. Don't figure it's too late. You're just where you need to be right at this present time. Never too late. Never, ever, ever. If there's anything I learned from starting life over at 52, it was that I don't care where you've been and I don't care what's happened before. It's never too late to make a change of direction. There is no wasted time. The direction matters more than the velocity. The choices of today is all that we have. I like that direction matters more than the velocity. That's a good one. Kellen, let's talk about why a lot of people are here to listen, and that is the afterlife. What can you tell us? And of course, then we can get back to some other things that you're doing. What has happened to you? Because there's so many different experiences out there, but they can be life altering. So in the world of we don't die in the afterlife, tell us a little bit about that story. So uh, as I mentioned, I had a divine intervention, which wasn't a near-death experience. It followed a suicide attempt two weeks earlier that changed my direction in 2007. 11 years later, and I walked away from everything and started over, started writing books and started on the path I'm on now. 11 years later, in June of 2018, my wife, Joy, and I went on a cruise, which we'd never done before. And we went on the Baltic Sea and visited Tallinn, Estonia, and you know, Helsinki and Oslo and Stockholm and St. Petersburg, which will probably never happen again. But, uh, you know, all of that stuff. And at the end, uh, I got sick. Uh, and, and that was Monday at the end of the cruise. And we flew home from Amsterdam Tuesday and it was worse. And I had a bad fever on the way home. And today, of course, they would throw you out of the window of the plane. On and That was 2018. So that was before the pandemic. So they were nice and brought me ice and cold towels because I was clearly not well. And uh, Tuesday, I got home, and that was day two, and the number of days will matter in a minute. Wednesday and Thursday, day three and four, I didn't um, go to the doctor because I just thought it was a horrific flu and it would get better. And finally, on Friday, which was day five, I realized this is this is not okay. So I went to the walk-in clinic, which they have here in Canada, and uh, they wouldn't let me in. The nurse took one look at me and said, you can't come in here. There's nothing we can do for you. Go to ER right now. Oh, okay. <laughs> so we drove to the hospital and, um, <clears throat> you know, when you go to the ER, they triage you and you expect to wait. I don't know. It depends on how busy an hour, maybe two, maybe even three, depending on, you know, who comes in and ambulances and everything else. And so I sat down and in, in 10 minutes, I heard my name called, and I was ushered into a private room, which I didn't even know they had in ERs. The only thing I'd ever seen is those curtains in between stretchers, right? And so here I am in a private room with the door, and 10 minutes later, a doctor's in there, and I'm like, okay, this is not good. And he goes over everything, told him everything where we'd been, and et cetera, et cetera. He listened to my, took my vitals and came back pretty quick and said, well, we're, we're going to admit you to the hospital. No, there's no question about that. We just have to find a place. And so more stuff, x-rays and MRIs and all that, the rest. And I sent Joy home. I said, okay, you know, they're going to put me in, come back in the morning, and we'll see what's going on. And so then they, they took me up to uh, a room finally, and it's starting to get late in the afternoon, early evening. And they came back and it said, um, we think we're going to move you to the ICU. Uh, okay. And then they came back in a little while. Um, <clears throat> we're not sure what you have, but you have at, at a minimum some kind of horrific pneumonia in both lungs. And 
There's a lot more than that. So we're probably going to put you in uh, biological isolation. Think of hazmat suits and double doors and airlocks and the whole nine yards. Right? Okay. And then I thought, okay, I better figure out what's going on. So I went into meditation, which I'd done all my life. And five of the books that I wrote are about meditation. But anyway, as I went into meditation, I could feel something very unique and unusual. And because I've been doing this for many, many decades, actually, I was able to feel, I felt like my body and spirit unzipping. It was like a zipper coming apart. So I knew that I was dying. So I came out of meditation and um, I sent Joy a text. I could barely operate my phone at this point because I'm trembling so much and we're going downhill bad. And it was only three lines and it said, um, oh wait, right before I sent that, they came back in and then they asked me the question, you never want to hear. And the doctor looked at me and said, um, do we have permission to uh, intubate you and do anything we need to do to preserve your life? What? Uh, okay. So the, the text said, I see you was the first line. The second line was isolation slash intubation. And the third line was, I may be dying. And so that was the text I sent. And she didn't see it. She was asleep. It was 11 or 12 then. And about two hours later, she got a phone call from the hospital. Uh, and she answered the phone and the nurse said, uh, are you coming? What? And then she saw my text. So somewhere after that last visit of the doctor, my heart, my heart stopped. I code, you know, crashed code blue, green, whatever it is. Right. And I'm in, I didn't know this, but they had moved me to the ICU and isolation and the whole nine yards. And my heart stopped and I died. So I flatlined. Uh, I was in a coma for 17 days. So uh, the rest of what I'm of what happened on the outside, I found out later <laughs> from uh, Joy watching, you know, people and the doctors and everything else. What happened inside is what I will share with you. And I wrote both in the book, Meeting God at the Door. But the the part I wrote about what went on outside was from people telling me what went on because I didn't know. So anyway, I came to spiritually. Uh, and I was horizontal, like I was on the stretcher, and I sat up, and the room had gone from a doctor sort of room, hospital room, to sort of a gray chamber. And it was soft gray, like photocard gray, and I really couldn't see how big the room was. But I sat up, and I looked around, I noticed over my left shoulder was a doorway. And I, I looked around, I, I wanted to be at the doorway, so then I was at the doorway and I was standing at the doorway leaning on the door jam on my right shoulder and I noticed the other side of the doorway was white and my side was gray and it wasn't streaming through but it was white on that side gray on my side and so I stood there and I noticed that on the other side leaning on that door jam on his right shoulder was someone else and he looked at me <clears throat> and said uh, do you want to come home And in the way you only know things in that space, I knew who I was talking to. I knew what the doorway was. I knew what the question meant. And it was all clear in, a, in an instant. And so we had a conversation about it, about what I had been doing for the last 11 years since the other invitation and what I'd changed and what I was doing and my goals and my relationship with Joy. And part of the fallout, I have 10 children from the three marriages that I had. And part of the fallout of the drugs and all the problems is some of my kids don't talk to me. Uh, and that's so strange, I guess you'd say, but I no longer hold anything. Some of them are still mad at me for this, that, and the other, and that's okay. But part of the things that I thought is, oh, I still got opportunities and, you know, work to do there. And I, so that was part of it. And I've this coaching business and people to help. And so we talked about it for a little while. And finally I said, <clears throat> I'm not done yet. And he said, okay. And uh, I'm quite sure that's when they were able to restart my heart. So that was the first conversation. It was only a single question. The next day, and people ask all the time, how did you know it was the next day? I don't know. 
you just know. Okay, so the next day we're back at the door, and the question about living or not living was solved. So that didn't come up again, but this time it's like, okay, what are you going to do? So then we start talking about um, the work in the world and what to do and coaching and loving people and the kind of work that you do when you're trying to add good to the world. And then I had an experience that the best analogy I can give is if you've ever seen the Jodie Foster movie Contact, where she goes in this outer space thing and feels like she's all over the universe. And it was like that. Uh, it, it felt like I was being fed with a fire hose. It felt like in terms of what I was seeing and witnessing, and it felt like if I hadn't been in some kind of a protective bubble, I would have been incinerated by the both the volume and the glory and the power of all the things that I was witnessing. And it lasted for I don't know how long. It seemed like a very long time. And when that was finished, we were back at the door, and four eternal and absolute things had become very clear to me. And these are the four things. Number one, that each of us are intentional, divinely created, carefully lovingly conceived beings of divine origin, period, period. The second thing that was really clear is that we were carefully and intentionally given gifts and talents to enjoy, to use, to develop, to serve with for our experience here. The third thing that was infinitely and eternally clear is that we have a mission and purpose that we not only agreed to, but that we were stoked about before we came. And the fourth thing was that all the help we need is available from both sides of that door. And Considering all that, I said, well, since that's true, and in a situation like that, you might say, well, you know, if that's true, but there you don't say if. Since that's true, why do we settle for crumbs? And I don't know if in the economy of heaven, brevity is a virtue, but the answer was four words. Because you don't believe. And I, duh, right? Only I, I didn't face palm, but I felt like it. Okay. And I said, all right, so what can I do? What, what can I do to help about that or help that? Oh, glad you asked. So what came then was an entire framework about how to change the beliefs we have. The ones that we learned, the ones that we've had drilled into us by what I call our B-deep, Beliefs, definitions, experiences, expectations, and perceptions. Together, those form what I call a context straitjacket. And your context is everything you think, how things work, what you get, who you are, what's possible, all that stuff that forms your context. And in most cases, it's a straitjacket because it limits what you think you can have or who you are, or what's available, or what your possibilities are. It limits all that, and it. the truth is it's transparent and flexible, and you can delete it anytime you like, but we don't know that. So that caused me to write a companion book to Meeting God at the Door called The Book of Context, and it's about it contains the whole formula for changing beliefs. And I didn't put that in Meeting God at the Door because, number one, it was too long. Number two, it was kind of off topic in terms of the visit. So it's the companion book, and it's funny because when I wrote the book of context, which I wrote at the same time as Meeting God at the Door, I had a client who is a speaker, motivational speaker. He's the best-known stress doctor in the world. His name is Dr. Mort Orman, and he invented or created National Stress Awareness Month and all that stuff. He's speaking at the Best You event in L.A. next uh, month or whenever it is. But anyway, I had to ask him to write forward, and he read it, and he loved it. 
And then he spent an hour talking to me, trying to get me to change the name from the book of context. And um, he said, come on, people don't understand that. If you read the book of joy or the book of love or something, people get that. But the book of context? And I patiently waited until he was done. And I said, his name's Mort Orman. He's not related to Susie, but Dr. Mort Orman. When he got done, I looked at him. I said, Mort, the, the name is not negotiable, <laughs> right? Like, it's not negotiable. Oh, okay. So uh, that was a tool, the tool about liberation and changing the beliefs that we have. <laughs> so that visit <clears throat> was, it felt very, very long uh, between the, 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 the side trip and the, the conversation that took place about all that. And the certainty of of what I saw and know uh, is encapsulated in those four things. So I saw, you know, the glory of creation and the truths that helped me understand with invincible certainty those four truths. And by extension, you know, the grand splendor of the whole plan. Anyway, so... When that conversation was finished, I was so excited. I was literally buzzing. Felt like I was one of those people sitting on one of those bouncy chairs in front of a desk, you know? Mm -hmm. So the third day, with the third conversation, I'm back at the door again. And, and I, I, all I did from then for the next 14 days in a coma was repeat over and over again and go over the principles that turned into the book of context and everything that I'd seen and what I knew with excitement and with wonder. And um, the third day, well, before I get to that one, in, in the first conversation, there, there are some things worth noting that I didn't be aware of until afterwards. And here's what they are, or at least some of them. I, I lived a life of struggle, of being a terrible marriage partner of being a drug addict of making a lot of money and wasting it and just stuff that easily could have been a movie or two in fact i've been asked several times uh have you done a movie script that okay like literally that i testified before congress i had a contract with the queen of england the late queen and that level of stuff world stage stuff and at the same time was a complete wreck on the other side so the thought of meeting my maker, the thought of owning those things uh, was horrifying. And if you combine that with the fact that the root cause of, of the depression I struggled with for my whole life was I was raised in an abusive home, physically abusive, sexually abusive, emotionally abusive, and it was all centered around religion and you're not good enough. And it wasn't be a good boy, Johnny. It was do this stuff or you're going to hell. And so I internalized to my DNA that I was a complete failure, that everything I did was wrong and I would never be good enough. And my whole life needed to be spent getting the approval of my mother because she had God on her side. Right. And so the idea of, you know, it was just like, yeah, that is not anything I ever want to do. And what I noticed that was so remarkable was the absence of all of that negativity that, that we talk as coaches about holding space. Well, I can tell you in that presence, do you want to come home? Like there was no question that there was going to be an answer, but there was no expectation about what the answer ought to be. And when we discussed going or staying, it was just a conversation. And the thing that was most notable was the absolute peace and space. And it was noticeable by the absence of all that other. It was, it was, we don't have human language to describe either that space or the experience I had when I was on a trip. It felt like, you know, we just don't have language to describe it. So I could say things like glorious beyond description or powerful beyond measure. Okay. Uh, and that would be right. And it doesn't even begin to encapsulate the simple and profound 
infinitude of those things. Anyway, so the third day we're back at the door and I'm just you know, excited. He looked at me and he said, uh, <clears throat> are you sure? What do you mean, am I sure? I thought, holy crap, did I miss something? Am I stupid? Am I biting off more than I can chew? Can I do this? I was a little bit, felt like hyperventilating, like, oh. And so we talked about it for a while, and finally I said, yeah, I'm, I'm sure. Okay. So, and that conversation ended. Uh, nothing was said, but it ended with the finality that I knew we were done. And 14 days later, I came out of the coma, and first things I was talking to nurses about was all of that, you know, everything that I'd seen, and I'm sure it was all blubbery and confused and crazy. And I thought, you know, they, they will think I'm nuts, you know, saying all this stuff, but I don't care. And I told Joy, and I told her over and over again, and I told them over and over again, and so forth. And... <clears throat> That's the end of the experience itself, but the aftermath doesn't stop there because even in the hospital later, there's two more pieces that I feel I should share, and that is in the hospital. I, I you know, I was in in the coma. I'd lost 35 pounds. I couldn't walk. I couldn't move. When I finally came to, I had to drag my legs out of bed with my arms one at a time. When I first stood up. Uh, I couldn't stand up. I had to clutch what looked like a tackling dummy on wheels. And standing even for five minutes was completely physically overwhelmingly exhausting. And it was partly because I'd been in a coma, but partly because of what had destroyed me. What turned it, what it turned out I had was a necrotizing MRSA, which is a staph A, flesh-eating stuff in both lungs and in my bloodstream. And the infectious disease specialist, who is the head of the University of Alberta team, which is a very highly regarded team, he told me, we talk about COVID with a mortality rate of 2 to 3%. He looked at me and he said, the 10-day kill rate of what you had was 100%. They didn't even figure out what I had until the end of day eight, which was Monday night. And I had crashed on Friday night and my heart had stopped Saturday morning which is the beginning of day six. So it's not surprising at all that I died. Of course you died. That's what happens. And the bacteria was so aggressive that when they had tubes in my neck and they were trying to get my bacteria count down, it wouldn't go down. And they found out that the bacteria had lodged and was attacking the plastic tubing. So they had to take it out of one side of my neck and put it in the other side. And so, and so it had completely destroyed my lungs. They said it was the worst case of pneumonia any of them had ever seen, and so forth. So, <clears throat> eventually, I was taken out of ICU. Eventually, I learned to shuffle my way down the corridor. And the day I first got to go past the double door airlocks was, you know, of great victory. I, I could walk that far, etc. So they took me upstairs back to a regular room and i've been in the hospital some 27 or 8 days and <clears throat> i couldn't seem to get any information about what the recovery prospects were like how long am i going to be here what what needs to happen etc cetera, etc cetera. and i started having hallucinations which was not weird because they had me on drugs that caused hallucinations then at that point because i was having a lot of pain and stuff ketamine specifically ketamine is a party drug that <laughs> they use at raves, but it's also, and I knew what that was because in the old days, that was something I was familiar with. But anyway, it also is a pain med. And so <clears throat> I was panicking. I was having just, I couldn't find, I was hearing things in the hall. I heard conspiracies. I was having horrible feelings. And I thought, I'm never going to get out of here. I can't get any information, et cetera, et cetera. And finally, one day uh, I had this uh, voice that you come to recognize when you've had these kind of experiences or, or anytime if you learn to recognize the spirit that said, well, why don't you use the book of context? 
So the principles in the book of context are very simple. There's four steps. One is, what do you believe right now? And you have to get specific and articulate it. What could you believe? What would you do if you believed that? Which is a set of experiments and then to note unexpected outcomes. And it's a lot longer than that. And there's a whole process. But I, as I, as I sat there, I laid there, I'd, I'd walk down the hall and out in the first time I'd actually gone out of the ICU and into the regular part of the hospital with somebody there with me, you know, making sure I didn't fall apart, et cetera, et cetera. And finally I got back and I thought, okay, what do I believe? I believe I'm never going to get out of here. They're not telling me what's going on and they're not even, you know, nothing's going to happen. I can't figure out what's going on. That's what I believe. Okay, and there's a little piece before this. I hadn't eaten anything for nearly a month because I'd been fed by tubes. And there's a whole story about they had to stick the tube that goes down in your stomach. I had to do that five times because the tube kept breaking. And if you've ever had a tube shoved up your nose and down in your stomach, yeah, I don't, that's not fun. But then it had to come out and come out and come out and come out. So I was hungry. Joy had argued for more food and I was getting it, but. It was just this horrible thing in my mind over and over again on top of hallucinations and conspiracy theories I was imagining and everything else. So I laid there and I thought, I'm never going to get out of here, et cetera, et cetera. And so step two is, well, what could you believe? I thought, well, I could believe that they're doing the best they can. They're not telling me when I'm going to get out of here because they don't know. <laughs> and we don't really know what's going on. And I could believe all this stuff. I thought, okay, step three. Well, what would you do if you believed that? Well. I'd be happy and I'd just be working with them and it'd be no problem. And so I thought, all right, I'm going to play with this. So I went into meditation laying on my bed and I imagined all of that. And I imagined, you know, being, being healthy and getting out of there. And, but I hadn't even eaten yet. So I'd ask them about eating and they said, well, you can't have anything in your mouth until you have a swallowing test. And a swallowing test is where they eat, give you some radioactive stuff and they put a, x-ray thing at your neck and they watch you swallow liquids and different kinds of things to see if you're going to aspirate anything because my lungs were of course a wreck and the idea of getting something foreign in there was like yeah no you want to die now here in the hospital no so um i couldn't even get it scheduled when can i get it i don't know tomorrow 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 finally they kept saying tomorrow 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 and i so i believed i'll never get the swallowing disc i'll never get out of here so this was the sort of stuff going on so I meditated for a while and I thought, all right, I'm going to apply these principles of the book of context. An hour after I finished that, uh, a, a nurse walked in the room and said, started moving me around. I said, what are, what are we doing? Oh, we're going down for the swallowing test. I said, what? And they couldn't even schedule it before. So we went down to the swallowing test and I passed it and I said, Oh, I'm so excited. I was looking forward to hospital dinner. Like, I can't wait to have hospital food, right? Imagine that. Can't wait to have hospital food. Can I take the results of the swallowing desk with me? Because it might take them too long to get up to the room. Yeah, sure, here. Oh, I'm clutching these papers like they're, you know, the key to the kingdom. So upstairs we go and I give them the things. Okay, cool. And then about uh, an hour later, Another guy came in that I recognized. He was a physical therapist. And he said, um, uh, and they'd been taking me for walks, you know. And he said, you said you had stairs in your house, right? I said, yeah. Okay. So uh, we're going to do a stair test today. What does that mean? We have to climb 10 stairs. Does it matter how I do it? No. So we, we hobbled to the stairwell in the hospitals, the industrial 10-foot-wide steel staircase, climbed 10 stairs. And I thought, there is no way I can climb 10 stairs. But anyway, got, got a hold of the railing and clawed my way up 10 stairs, furiously panting at each one. Got down and took me back to the room. Okay. And uh, then this, uh, this uh, Indian doctor came in, East Indian, I don't know if he's Pakistani or Indian, that matters because in a minute, and he asked me, how are you feeling? And we talked about all these different things. He said, oh, so when do you plan, when would you like to get out of here? And so I thought, oh, finally, he's going to tell me how many weeks, you know, two weeks, three weeks of whatever to get out of here, right? And so I looked at him and I said, yester minute. And uh, he said, uh, what? 
And I said, you know, yesterday, yester hour, yester minute, and about 15 seconds later, the penny dropped, and he started laughing. Ah! <laughs> yester minute. So anyway, that's why it matters, because you can imagine the accent. He was a really nice guy. It was funny, but he didn't get the picture until he had to think about it for a minute. So he, he left, and in about a half an hour, 45 minutes, the three nurses came in, and they started uh, doing stuff and packing. It looked like they were packing my stuff, and I said, what's going on? Oh, you're being released. And I said, what? You're being released. I called Joy, and I, she was out running some errands, and I said, um, you need to be at the hospital entrance in 45 minutes. Why? We're going home. Silence. What? We're going home. They couldn't find a wheelchair except one that was broken. So 45 minutes later, I'm in a broken wheelchair at the door. Obviously shouldn't have been released, but it was a clear manifestation of the power of creation. So I was sent home with instructions and all the rest of the stuff that was manifested by using the power of the book of context like that. And that I never had the hospital food. The first piece of food in my mouth after a month was an A&W burger on the way home. Okay. So the other little piece, do I have time to tell a little more piece of story? Okay, Absolutely. cool. Absolutely. Take your time. Okay. So that was July. By October, I could walk enough to move around. And I could finally walk to the end of the block, you know. And so in October, I went on a went on three trips to speak at different places. And I had the books done by then, Book of Context and Meeting God at the Door. And so I spoke about them. And in one place, uh, after I talked, someone in the audience asked a question. And they said, so what's the biggest change for you? And I hadn't really prepared for any questions. And while I thought about it, uh, my mouth, I heard my mouth open and say, I no longer experience fear. And someone came up to me afterwards and said, what do you mean by that? And I said, <clears throat> what in the world do I have to be afraid of? Like there is nothing that could happen internally, externally that would cause me to fear. Anyway, so that got tested in two months. On December the 5th, at the end of November, I started feeling my back ache. And on December the 5th, I woke up paralyzed from the waist down. So this is four months, July, August, September, October, November, December, five months after I'd got out of the hospital. I got out of bed that morning and fell on my face, literally, side of the bed. I got up on my hands and knees and fell on my face. Nothing was working except above the waist. So we called the ambulance. I crawled my way down the stairs, army crawl on my hands and knees and knocked the dog gate over and it was a mess. And Joy helped me up on the couch. I'm laying there on the couch in the living room, paralyzed, wondering what the flip is going on. And uh, so the guys in the ambulance came and they figured out, I guess we're going to the hospital. Nothing to do here. So they loaded me in the back of the ambulance, and um, I was in terrible pain. Couldn't move, but from the waist down. Didn't understand what was going on. And then I had this sort of picture in my mind. I, I guess you could call it a vision, but picture. And it was one of those sports things, like you see the uh, World Series of Poker, like where they have these tables, and the room is kind of always purple and black and these lights and everything. And so there's all these tables around. It was first person. It was through my eyes. And I'm sitting at a table, and there's people around me. And then, then I realized that straight across from me was uh, the Grim Reaper in full regalia. And I looked at that, and I thought, okay, holy crap. And the rest of the people at the table sort of faded, and it was just us. And, all, and then the Reaper reached down with stacks of chips, and he... He did that motion of sliding all the chips in the middle. And the, the feeling was, you know, like hyperventilation, like, holy crap. And then I thought, okay, if 
your opponent only i didn't say your opponent i said the adversary all right if the adversary raises the stakes never mind that it's all in what are your choices I said well you either fold or you call and i was alone in the back of the ambulance and i'm i lifted up the only thing i could move which is my arm and i slammed it on the stretcher and screamed at the top of my lungs then i call and the vision faded it turns out as i got to the hospital they did an mri and stuff like that and they took me from the er to the or and did an operation immediately and it turns out that the mrsa that i'd had before hadn't been completely eradicated from my body and it had relodged inside my spinal column way up in the neck so from c2 to t1 which is about four inches in the vertebrae it had created a cyst or an abscess or whatever it is and had solidified and was putting pressure on my spinal column which is why i was paralyzed so they called the doctor and they did emergency midnight surgery and by accident of course it's not an accident the best surgeon one of the most notable spinal surgeons in canada was on call at the other hospital and they came over in the middle of the night and did surgery like i said i was never even admitted er or he saw the mri and said prep this guy for surgery right now so that's what happened <clears throat> and so here's the reason that mattered they fixed it they did the operation middle of the night 10 days later i was released and when they took my stitches out on the 27th of december uh i got out on the 14th and they took the stitches out on the 27th. I went in and the doctor looked at me and he said, you know, um, he said, I can count on less than one hand. The number of people that have come into the hospital in the shape you were in and then walked out under their own power. So the reason this matters is because what I else had to do is I had to have a pick line. A pick line is a, is a device that they put in your veins. It goes in under your arm and it goes in through the veins and drips antibiotic into your heart because the antibiotics they had to give me were so corrosive that if they put them in your veins or anything else, they collapse all your veins. So they had to put it in where it was the most blood flow. So I had to wear a pick line and a pump for six weeks. And they gave me these antibiotics for six weeks to, to finally kill this stuff. So here's the reason I have to add that story to the other. I had to go pick up a weekly supply of antibiotics at the outpatient pharmacy at the hospital, which was across the street. Now, this is January, which is six months after the other thing happened. I went into the pharmacy, outpatient pharmacy, to pick up the first set of bags, which are these, you know, bags, and you're carrying around bags and wearing the whole thing, right? And I went in and I said, uh, I'm here to, first time I'd done it, so I didn't know what I was doing. And. I think I'm in the right place. I'm here to pick up some antibiotics. I got a pick line and uh, blah, blah, blah. And I'm, uh, and I got that far. And the nurse looked up and said, oh, we know who you are. And I said, what do you mean? Said, oh, we know who you are. And that, so the, everything that had happened and everything I'd said was that impactful that six months later, that was what this lady said and she didn't have anything to do with anything that had happened before so that's the impact of those things so anyway since then i wore that for six weeks they told me my lungs would come back two years to never i'm back to probably 90 80 percent aerobic capacity i can i'm physically healed and the whole point of that is i have a mission i'm doing it and the, the way i view those two experiences was the Dying was the cherry on the cake. It was a blessing that it happened as a result of what had happened 11 years earlier. It was a gift. It was a gift to see and to know and to feel the things that I felt about the work that I was doing. And then the, the final thing, which was that back surgery six months later, was like one more effort to take me down, which wasn't going to happen. So when I say I'm on a mission, just like everything else in my life, the world stage and the Congress testified before Congress and this and that and the other, I'm on a mission. And if I'm going to help 50 million people, there is no way in hell that's not happening. Right? 
So those are the stories that have to do with the divine, and they're real, and I know it, and that's who I am and where I live. Wow. So like you said, when you had that experience, we don't have words to really explain it. That's how I feel after hearing your story. So I'm not even going to try. And I'm sure those watching and listening feel the same way. What I have to say to you is thank you. Thank you for being a stand that there's work to be done. Thank you for, of course, telling your story, but living in a way that others can have this belief and be empowered in their lives, knowing that they truly are limitless. Thank you for sharing the story in a way that we can each see ourselves in you because you, your life and healing and all of that, the only word I can think of is miraculous. But with the book of context, I have the sneaky suspicion that that is the key to the miraculous. Once we can understand, like you said, those thoughts and things that we have, our baggage from years gone by that we don't even know we are carrying that limit us, but how we can reframe our beliefs leading to an unpredictable and grand future. I don't swear on this show, but I sure would like to with the holy SHIT right now. We're definitely going to help you get to those 50 million. And for those of you listening and watching and want to press the share button, go for it. Because who knows whose lives this can make a difference for. Here's something I know, Sandra. There's nothing interesting or special about me. I got the divine smack upside the head in 2007 to get me sober. The joy, the story that I didn't tell you guys, because it's in part of the show and we don't really have time. It's in the book of, it's in Tightrope, is about the, that divine intervention and how the invitation came to change my life. If you knew the wreck of the battlefield behind me, if there was ever a candidate to be left at the bottom of the canyon, I was it. And so, what I know for sure, like there is no length to which the divine won't go to offer you the opportunity. You have to say yes, and you have to do the work, and so did I. But, And it is never too late. And so the idea that it's too late or you can't or it's too much this, that, and the other, it's just not true. The, the, the life that I had before was a disaster in the largest capital D sense of the word. And so if, if, I, if I'm worth that invitation, then so are you. If I'm... <clears throat> able to do these things, and so are you. All I did is say yes to the invitation, and I had no idea the direction. I had no idea what was coming next. I had no idea what I was going to do. Just walked off in the sunset, walked away from a 30-year career, walked away from millions of dollars in contracts, just said, okay, we're done with that life, including all of the negative stuff. Principally, I'm just, I got out of the whole business and started all over again. Okay, we're going to go over here now without any idea where it was going to go or what it was going to do. And it was not easy. When Joy and I got together, she, we didn't even know each other. Like We got married before we got acquainted. And that was a divine direction, too. Like, I don't know that we have time to share that part, but it was, and so I won't. But the, the <clears throat> part of her soul contract was involved, too, which she knew. <clears throat> and so... There's nothing, nothing special about me compared to you. No matter where you are or what you've been through, th there is help available. You are valuable. You are worthwhile. And th the level of your suffering right now because of whatever's happened in your life is what it is. And pain is inevitable, but suffering is optional. And when we decide to connect and say yes to the divine invitations. Maybe this is an invitation for you. I don't know. You want to think about that. Kellen, I want to ask in the, about beliefs. Those that have had near-death experiences, 100% of the time, like they know there's something else. So they have an opportunity to live life differently. 
others get to listen to extraordinary stories. Would you say that living your book of context there has the power to give us belief, meaning how you, you know, you went through those stages to reframe and challenge our beliefs and believe something new, we can get an unpredictable future or result. Are those kind of things possible to really let us know that there's a big picture, to give us something to believe in, to give us that faith that we're not walking alone? 100% absolutely. You don't need to die and have it. The only reason that two by fours happened to me is because I was deaf. Okay, I was deaf and broken. I spent 35 years from 17 to 52 in isolation, struggling with the ups and downs of depression, self-sabotage, and self-loathing, and ignored all the promptings and spiritual nudges that I had heard before then. And so the invitation came in the form of a two by four. You don't need to die. You don't need to attempt suicide. You don't need to be an addict. What you need to do is say yes to the tiny nudges that you get, and you can develop I guarantee you can develop increased sensitivity to the spirit. You can understand when you're being guided and you can follow your intuition. And the more you follow your intuition and do the things you know you could and should do in any moment, the louder they get and the more certain you get. You're always going to be pushed to the edge of the light and then need to take a step in the dark. That's going to happen to everybody. It happened to me. I walked away from millions of dollars with a woman I didn't know to say, okay, I'm going to start all over again. That is real life. That really happened. And we spent the first four or five years getting to know each other. And all of that entails. And so you don't have to have those kind of things. You can say yes to the nudges that you have. And the book of context, the four simple steps, will allow you to get rid of even the deepest difficult beliefs that you have. I promise you that divine is trying to help us all. There seems to be rules about how that works. And the one of the most important rules is there's no violation of your ability to choose. So I could have had the divine interventions that I had in 2007 and dismissed them as nonsense and got high the next day with the cocaine I had laying around. I was a $3,000 a week cocaine addict. Okay. And I went from $3,000 a week to zero in one day. Just because I said, okay, we're done. This is done. We're done with this thing. And, you know, that's another whole episode, that intervention and what happened in 2007. But it was real. It was hard. I had to bust my ass. I had to get vulnerable. I had to tell the truth for the first time in my life at 52. I was a pathological liar. I'd been through three marriages. I didn't even know people. I had 10 kids. I was uh, trying to you know, literally living on one life facing outward and behind the scenes, I was coming else. I remember coming home at night and saying, you know, when the lights go out, I don't even know who the frick I am. Like it was method acting at the highest level. I can go be anything you want. Tell me what the outcome is and tell me who I need to be. And I can go do that with flawless perfection on a world stage. And behind the scenes, I didn't know who I was. And so <clears throat> the level of wake-up call is equal to the number of times we've ignored stuff, it, it seems like. But you're always going to have a choice. You're always going to have a doubt. Hmm, maybe this isn't intuition. Maybe, I don't know. <laughs> Do it anyway. Because if you don't, you know where that goes. Nowhere. So don't and stay where you are. Don't and continue to doubt. Doubt your doubts. Okay, if you desperately need to doubt something, doubt your doubts. There is the help available from both sides of that door, which is the fourth principle that I talked about. That's as real as the sun shining in Phoenix. And I lived there for 21 years. It shines 330 days a year. It's real, and you, right here, right now, whoever you are listening to this, are as important as anybody that's ever breathed air on this earth. And that's not hype. Yes, you can have it, you can do it, you can live a life of purpose, prosperity, and joy. You can create your own existence, even if it's a little at a time, 1%. Like, I'm 15 years on, and so you see me here with the phoenix behind me and in power and making all kinds of noise after 15 years 
of blood on the floor. Okay, so yes, the answer to your question is yes. Oh, hallelujah. Well, Kellen, I'm sure you've left people wanting more. So you've got lots of books. So we know we've got your website. Could you tell us some of the things you offer and how most, people can work with you or find out more? Or I only have one goal. Okay. My goal this year is to help 50 million people discover their gifts and serve with them. Maybe that means making a business, creating income and impact and all the stuff we hear about. You want to help? You want help doing that? I'm the best there is, period. And I don't mean that weird. All right. If you want to read books, go on Amazon with a name like Kellen Flukiger. You, you can't hide. OK, so all you have to do is spell my name right on Amazon. And there's books all over the place. Meeting God at the Door is there. Book of Context is there. Tightrope of Depression is there. I wrote a business book called The Results Equation. You know, if you want that, tightrope looks like this. Tightrope of depression. Meeting God at the door looks like that. Book of context looks like that. The last book I wrote was a book on forgiveness. You know, and they all come out of my own experience and the need to do that. So if you want to find me, do that. One of the things I'm doing right now is a live video every day that's 10 to 20 minutes long on seven places on my Facebook thing and on LinkedIn and on YouTube called Road to 50 Million. And it's a conversation about the things that are going on in my life to do the work to get to 50 million, to help people discover and serve with their gifts. So my website's my name, kellenflukiger.com. Funny thing, when you got a weird name like that, I didn't have any trouble getting my website. Like I got it for two bucks, right? There were no competition. <laughs> Nobody funny. else wanted kellenflukiger.com, right? I wrote a business book called The Results Equation, which is the result of all my years of um, consulting. It's funny because that never goes away. I got I was in San Francisco last week. And the reason I was in San Francisco last week is even 15 years later, I got called back to be an expert witness in a trial having to do with the old stuff. And so I got paid to get back in. And, you know, today I made an appearance downtown. I am an expert witness because I say I am, you know, that world for a minute. And that was fun because I did well. And it was I was helping someone out who I knew the owner of the company. And he's a friend from back in the old days of the industry. So you can find me anywhere you want, Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube, Amazon, and reach out if you want to have a conversation. Like if you, if you want to have a conversation, reach out. I offer group coaching. I offer private coaching. And I only work with people who are committed to themselves. I'm not in the business of convincing you you ought to be. If you're tired of where you're at and you're ready to move, we can get anything done you want. We can create miracles. Wow. Callan, thank you so much for being our guest here today. I can't think of any place in this world that I'd rather be than right here, right now with you. Well, I feel exactly the same way. Wow. Oh, and to our listener or our viewer, I'm trusting you feel the same way. If you are watching this on YouTube, you can go look in the description and I have some live links to Kellen's website and more. Um, yeah, I'm left speechless and that's a good thing because we can just take it all in, take in the awe of your experience and let us let it guide and motivate and shape ours. But it takes action. I tell you what, I love listening to a good story. I do. But then when the mirrors turn back at me, knowing that I can have results, you can have results, but it takes action. So I'm excited and I'm really excited to read the book of context. That sounds just like my cup of tea. So for our listener or our viewer, our home base is wedontdie.com, like I mentioned in the beginning. If you'd like a free copy of my book, We Don't Die, A Skeptic's Discovery of Life After Death, you will find it on the store page. Just use coupon code FREE. It's the audio book and also a PDF is included. I know many people come to the show because you're experiencing deep grief. Chapter 10 is how to survive grief and just is some really important tools to help you on your journey. 
We offer a free Sunday gathering, which I can't recommend enough. We have over 150 of them now, and they celebrate life and the afterlife with great messages, great themes, great music videos, and there's a medium demonstration within each and every one. And there's been probably close to a thousand people who have reunited with their loved ones who are beyond the veil, as you may say. It really is quite special, letting us know that in this space around us, even though we think we're alone, no, it's packed full of your cheerleaders, many of whom have been on this road before. And like Kellen says, we just have to listen. They're not going to be, or they may be, you know, lightning bolts or lights flashing on and off happening to let you know. Only for those of us that are dense. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) But they could be such subtle, subtle things. You look at someone's photograph, you have love in your heart, memories come flooding back, little signs that they tell you that they are around. The voice you hear in your mind, you may think is your own, but it might be them working through that voice to get to you. May I say one more thing? Sure you can. I know you're giving your clothes. I couldn't stop or get off this thing without honoring and loving you for the good work you're doing. I love your face. I love your work. I love the gifts that you bring. I love your smile. I love your dedication. I love your heart. And I honor every breath that you take trying to lift the burdens and sorrows of people's hearts. So bless you every good thing that you're doing. Oh, thank you for that, my friend. I feel it. I feel the love. And it's important for us to love ourselves as well. So I love me, like the song says. Well, my friends, in closing, my name is Sandra Champlain. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode of We Don't Die. I do believe in all my heart that life is an education for the soul, that your life here on earth is important. Sprinkle in some gratitude Sprinkle in some integrity, be of service to another, and you can't go wrong. So go check out Kellen's site, and then we'll see you again soon. Bye for now. Mm -hmm.